Welcome to Let's Talk FCA, Pearl and Morning's podcast bringing you the latest developments with the False Claims Act. I'm Jason Crawford, and I'm joined today by co-host Augustina Rosco and special guest Steve Byers to discuss the intersection between False Claims Act investigations and parallel criminal proceedings. We want to start off by introducing Steve. He's a partner in Kroll's government contracts and white collar and regulatory enforcement practice groups. And for more than 30 years, he's represented clients in the government contracts and healthcare sectors in connection with the full gamut of government investigations, from civil FCA investigations to federal grand jury investigations. There isn't much he hasn't seen. Steve was a guest on the podcast back in September of 2018, and we wanted to invite him back to join our discussion about considerations for companies navigating parallel proceedings. So welcome back to the podcast, Steve. Do you want to set the table for the listening audience by explaining what parallel proceedings are and how they might arise in the FCA context? Thanks, Jason. It's good to be here. So parallel proceedings are essentially simultaneous or successive criminal and civil proceedings, whether investigations or litigation or both, that arise out of a common set of facts. These multiple proceedings can be commenced by different agencies or different components of DOJ, or even different branches of government, or on the civil side, private litigants. In the False Claims Act context, it's not at all unusual for Civil False Claims Act investigations to trigger criminal investigations, and vice versa, because after all, we're basically talking about allegations of fraud. And in fact, every False Claims Act WETAM action that is filed nationwide is reviewed by the fraud section in the criminal division of DOJ for possible criminal investigation. So, as I said, it's rather common to see criminal investigations arise out of or in conjunction with Civil False Claims Act investigations. And when that happens, things can get very complicated very quickly. Among other things, individual rights come to the fore, increasing the chances that employee witnesses may need separate counsel and may invoke their Fifth Amendment rights when interviewed or deposed. And to the extent a False Claims Act case is in litigation, the government might seek a partial or total stay of the civil case while the criminal investigation proceeds. But we've also seen instances in which the criminal investigators are happy to let the parallel civil proceeding move forward because it's such a rich source of evidence. The government generally cannot, however, surreptitiously use a civil investigation merely as a stalking horse for an undisclosed criminal investigation. Thanks, Steve. I'll add that DOJ guidance encourages coordination in cases involving potential civil, criminal, and administrative remedies. And both the civil and criminal attorneys at DOJ are always going to be looking for the best way to push their investigations forward. But to your last point, civil and criminal attorneys have different tools at their disposal, and these tools can only be used for their intended purposes. For example, a criminal AUSA can't ask a civil AUSA to issue a civil investigative demand because the criminal AUSA doesn't want to use a grand jury subpoena. And in the same vein, the criminal team would not be able to share information obtained through a grand jury with the civil team without first obtaining an order from the court under Criminal Rule 60. Moreover, the government will have to clearly delineate who is on the prosecution team for purposes of meeting its discovery obligations. Augustine, do you want to speak to the general thought process of an AUSA in assessing whether a parallel criminal investigation should be opened in an FCA case? Yes, thanks, Jason. So if prosecutors are asked to assess a civil FCA case for potential criminal prosecution, Prosecutors will look to the building blocks of a case. Is the relator credible? Can the relator uh, information provided by the relator be corroborated? Who are going to be the witnesses? You know, things of that nature. However, when you're talking about a criminal case, 
there are two main differences from a civil case. First, the government will have a higher burden of proof and will have to prove its case beyond a reasonable doubt. And that's in contrast to the preponderance of the evidence standard in civil cases. Second, when talking about the False Claims Act specifically, prosecutors are looking to see if they can prove criminal intent. Under the civil statute, the government can prove knowledge using a deliberate ignorance or reckless disregard standard. But that's not the case in criminal cases. The government will need to prove criminal intent, such as the specific intent to defraud. So as a prosecutor, you look to see if the scheme is so brazen that you can prove criminal intent circumstantially, but ideally, you're looking for direct evidence of the criminal intent needed to bring criminal charges. With that said, from a criminal standpoint, prosecutors have a lot of statutes at their disposal. In addition to the Criminal False Claims Act statute, prosecutors will also look towards the wire and mail fraud statutes at 18 U.S.C. 1343, honest services fraud, major program fraud, the Anti-Kickback Act, and the False Statement Statute at 18 U.S.C. 1001. And these are just a few examples of the statutes available to prosecutors. But I intentionally started with wire fraud and ended with 1001 or false statements because these are the first and last statute that prosecutors will always be looking towards when charging a white-collar case. The wire fraud statute is very broad and easy to apply, so federal prosecutors turn to it often. It also carries a 20-year statutory maximum prison sentence, which is a pretty powerful hammer. So when I was a prosecutor and I was investigating a contractor for Criminal False Claims Act violations, I would look to see if the Criminal False Claims Act statute applied, but I would also look to see if I could charge wire fraud. And at the end of the investigation, I would also check to see if anyone made a material false statement or omission during their interview. And if they did, I would look to tack on charges for making false statements. So all of this to say that an investigation will hardly ever be limited to one or two criminal statutes. Yes, the specific statute at issue is important, but it is also important to know that prosecutors don't want to spend a year in a case and walk away with nothing. So they will look to the other statutes such as wire fraud and false statements to beef up or save their investigation. But to help our listeners understand how a corporation could be implicated and charged in a criminal matter, Steve, I was hoping you could provide some background on criminal corporate liability generally. Sure, Augustine. So, so first of all, keep in mind that corporations are legal persons who can be prosecuted for committing crimes, just like a natural person can. And corporations have some of the same rights as individuals, such as a trial by jury, but not others. So, for example, corporations have no Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination, and so they can't invoke that privilege in refusing to respond to a subpoena for documents. But here's what's most important. Under the doctrine, doctrine of respondeat superior, just like in a torts case, for example, corporations can be held criminally liable for the illegal acts of their directors, officers, employees, and agents. And what most people, do, many people don't realize is that the standard for imputing individual criminal wrongdoing to a corporate employer is rather low. The government need only establish that the corporate, the corporate agent's actions, number one, were within the scope of their duties, and two, were intended, at least in part, to benefit the corporation. So, for example, a corporation can be held criminally liable for a kickback scheme that benefited the company, even if the perpetrators were mainly interested in lining their own pockets. That's right, Steve. And DOJ's principles of federal prosecution of business organizations list various factors for prosecutors to consider in deciding whether to criminally charge a corporation. Among the factors that prosecutors will consider are whether the corporation uh, cooperated, 
the adequacy and effectiveness of compliance programs um, at the time of the offense, at the time of the charging decision, whether there was a voluntary self-disclosure of misconduct and uh, any remedial actions, including implementation or improvement of any compliance program. Jason, I'll just jump in because you mentioned voluntary self-disclosure, and I want to focus on that now because if the facts discovered through an internal investigation indicate possible criminal conduct of which the government may not be aware, you have to think about a potential voluntary disclosure to DOJ's criminal division. DOJ offers very valuable benefits for companies that disclose criminal wrongdoing, and if you can get out ahead of the problem, you may be able to get the benefit of those policies and even avoid a catastrophic criminal prosecution of the company. So Steve, let's start this discussion with a little bit of history. Can you walk us through the evolution of DOJ's policies incentivizing voluntary self-disclosure? Yeah, happy to do that, Augustine. It's kind of an interesting evolution. The first DOJ policy designed to incentivize voluntary self-disclosures was the Antitrust Division's Corporate Leniency Policy, which was first adopted in the early 1990s. That policy provides for amnesty for the first company to report its participation in a criminal antitrust conspiracy, such as a price-fixing conspiracy. And other participants can get leniency for being second in the door and so forth. So you're essentially incentivizing co-conspirators to rat each other out. And this has been hugely successful, with companies bringing ready-made criminal cases to DOJ on a silver platter. But that policy is unique to the antitrust crime, to antitrust crimes, which by definition are conspiracies. It wasn't until 2016 that the concept of incentivizing corporate disclosures was formally applied by DOJ in another context, when the criminal division's fraud section launched a pilot program to incentivize what was commonly called self-reporting in the context of the context of the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, which outlaws bribery of foreign officials. Now, the concept and practice of encouraging and rewarding such disclosures had been around long before that. It just wasn't a formal policy. And the theory here was essentially that a formal policy was needed because foreign bribery offenses are difficult to detect and difficult to investigate. This quickly evolved from a pilot program to a formal policy in the Justice Manual in 2017, and then in 2018, it was adopted as non-binding guidance in all criminal cases. Over time, the policy became much more specific regarding what a company had to do to qualify for leniency and the benefits it would receive, such as a complete declination of prosecution. And a little over a year ago, DOJ adopted and enshrined in the Justice Manual a corporate enforcement and voluntary self-disclosure policy, and that applies to all criminal division cases. The new policy enhanced the incentives of corporations to make voluntary disclosures, cooperate in the ensuing government investigation, and take appropriate remedial measures. Shortly thereafter, a similar policy was rolled out that applies to all U.S. attorneys' offices nationwide, and that was followed by a formal DOJ policy incentivizing disclosures in the context of mergers and acquisitions, such as when wrongdoing is discovered during pre-closing due diligence or during post-closing integration. And on that last point, we've had a couple of cases in that vein in recent years where whistleblowers in the acquired entity stepped forward post-acquisition to accuse prior management of fraud and corruption. One of those cases is still ongoing, and the other one uh, actually resulted in the criminal conviction of one of the executives, while our client, the corporation, uh, got full credit for its disclosure and for cooperating in the government's investigation. Thanks for that overview, Steve. Um, I'm going to jump in here to talk briefly about the voluntary self-disclosure or VSD policies of the DOJ and the U.S. Attorney's offices uh, that you just mentioned. 
So generally speaking, the three pillars of these policies are disclosure, cooperation, and remediation. Uh, with respect to disclosure, one area of difference between the DOJ and the U.S. Attorney's policies is timeliness. Uh, DOJ's policy requires disclosure at, quote, the earliest possible time, uh, which could be even before an internal investigation is complete. Uh, however, we should note that the U.S. Attorney's policy doesn't include this language. Regarding cooperation, one key aspect is to avoid compromising the government's investigation prior to disclosure. To that end, the DOJ's VSD policy requires what's called deconfliction in order to receive full cooperation. Deconfliction requires the company to defer certain investigative steps on the government's request to avoid the internal investigation from conflicting or interfering with the DOJ's investigation. And lastly, the remediation aspect of the VSD policies focuses on the efforts to determine the cause of the compliance gap and to take a subsequent and appropriate response. Both the U.S. Attorney's Office's policy and DOJ policies provide that benefits of timely disclosure and cooperation can include not seeking a guilty plea, potentially no imposition of a criminal penalty, and if there is a penalty, penalty reduction of 50 to 75 percent below guidelines range, and no imposition of a monitor if there is, in fact, an effective compliance program. Of course, these policies are meant to incentivize companies to self-disclose potential criminal misconduct, but there are some similarities with the sorts of factors that DOJ civil attorneys can consider for awarding credit for the disclosure, cooperation, and remediation in connection with civil FCA matters. As we previously discussed in the October 2023 podcast, these FCA guidelines are incorporated into Section 4 of the Justice Manual, and DOJ's Civil Division has recently started including specific references to these cooperation guidelines in some of its settlements to shed light on the steps that the particular company took in order to earn the cooperation credit. Of course, in addition to thinking about the potential carrot of cooperation credit for making a voluntary disclosure, uh, government contractors also need to be thinking about the stick um, associated with the mandatory disclosure rule. Steve, could you discuss the interplay between the mandatory disclosure rule and voluntary disclosure considerations? Jason, and this is an evolving landscape, right? Because these DOJ formal policies are relatively new. And government contractors have been living with the mandatory disclosure rule for quite some time now. The rule requires that government contractors report certain types of wrongdoing, such as False Claims Act violations or criminal fraud, to the cognizant office of Inspector General. And failure to do so can lead to suspension in department. But where criminal offenses are involved, companies need to think carefully about whether they should also make a disclosure to the DOJ under the policies we've just outlined. And this begs the question, is the disclosure truly voluntary in these circumstances? I would argue that it is. The mandatory disclosure rule doesn't require disclosure to DOJ. It requires disclosure to the OIG. Thus, the DOJ disclosure is in fact voluntary. This also makes sense from a policy perspective because it doesn't make much sense to adopt a policy encouraging corporate disclosures and then exclude an entire sector of the economy from its application. Thanks for that, Steve. So now I figure we can wrap up with each of us leaving our listeners with some key considerations when there is or potentially could be a parallel criminal investigation. Steve, why don't you kick us off? Uh, so I'll, I'll give you three key considerations. First, remember that evidence of criminal offenses can arise in the midst of a Civil False Claims Act investigation. 
So if during a company's internal investigation of False Claims Act allegations, it discovers evidence rising to the level of criminal fraud, it should pause and consider a voluntary disclosure to the criminal division in order to get credit under the DOJ policies. Second, remember that point about deconfliction. If you're dealing with potential criminal wrongdoing, you have to be careful to avoid taking any steps that could compromise a future criminal investigation by the government, such as reaching out to third parties and potentially tipping off future targets of a government investigation that the jig is up. Among other things, that can lead to the loss of valuable evidence that might otherwise have been preserved. And third, keep in mind that if an employee witness invokes their Fifth Amendment rights in a deposition, those invocations can, in theory, be used as the basis for adverse inferences against the company in civil litigation, at least in federal court, such as in a False Claims Act case. Yeah, those are good points, Steve, and they lead to another important consideration, which is to try to obtain a global settlement um, because a, a resolution of the civil FCA case uh, could impact the criminal case and vice versa. When a company faces parallel civil and criminal proceedings with respect to a False Claims Act matter, therefore, uh, the company will often want to seek a global resolution uh, with each of the relevant DOJ components to avoid having the resolution of one investigation adversely impact the other. Finally, I'll just add that a criminal investigation also raises the issue of separate representation for employees. Although this may be necessary even when there is no parallel criminal investigation, as this issue is arising more frequently in False Claims Act cases. This analysis is driven mainly by the rules of professional responsibility, and the issue usually comes to the fore when the government seeks an interview of or testimony from an employee. Basically, a lawyer for the company cannot jointly represent the company and an individual unless the lawyer is absolutely certain that, if she were representing only the individual, she would unequivocally advise the witness that it is in his best interest to testify regardless of whether the company's interests may lie. Basically, a lawyer for the company cannot jointly represent the company and an individual unless the lawyer is absolutely certain that if she were representing only the individual, she would unequivocally advise the witness that it is in his best interest to testify, regardless of where the company's interests may lie. Thus, there is sometimes a need for separate counsel for individuals. Well, that's it for this episode. We hope you enjoyed our discussion of the intersection between the False Claims Act and parallel criminal investigations. I want to thank Steve for joining us on this episode, and we'll see you next time on Let's Talk FCA. Let's Talk FCA is brought to you by Kroll & Mooring LLP. You can find more information at kroll.com slash letstalkfca. 